500 years ago, Martin Luther wrote and published his 95 Theses, which launched the Protestant Reformation, and the world has never been the same. Today, we'll be talking about the Protestant Reformation and its consequences, both intended and unintended, with our special guest, Dr. Brad Gregory, author of Rebel in the Ranks, Martin Luther, the Reformation, and the Conflicts that Continue to Shape Our World. I'm Dr. Bob Rice, professor of catechetics at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. Welcome to Franciscan University Presents. I'm your host, Dr. Bob Rice, a professor of catechetics here at Franciscan University of Steubenville, and we're talking about Martin Luther and the Reformation today. I'm joined by our regular panelists, Dr. Regis Martin, professor of systematic theology here at Franciscan University, and Dr. Scott Hahn, who is the Father Michael Scanlon Professor of Biblical Theology and the New Evangelization here at Franciscan. And we're pleased to welcome our special guest, Dr. Brad Gregory. Dr. Brad Gregory is the Dorothy G. Griffin Professor of Early Modern European History at the University of Notre Dame. He owns a PhD in European History from Princeton University, an MA from the University of Arizona. His books include The Unintended Reformation, How a Religious Revolution Secularized Society, and Seeing Things Their Way, Intellectual History and the Return of Religion, which he edited, edited with Alistair Chapman and J.R.D. Coffey. And pertinent to today's discussion, you are the author of Rebel in the Ranks, Martin Luther, the Reformation, and the Conflicts that Continue to Shape Our World. So welcome. We're really, really glad to have you here today. Thanks so much, Bob. It's great to be here. You know, maybe just to start off with, when we talk about this word reformation, uh, what exactly are we talking about? Well, um, what I'm talking about, yeah. the way that we're <laughs> going to talk about it in the course of our conversation today, uh, we're talking about the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century that begins mm -hmm. in the 16th century, uh, starts with Martin Luther, and we'll talk some more about that, I'm sure. But uh, what I mean by it as a whole are all those Western Christians, the Christians within Latin Christendom, mm -hmm. who over the course of the 16th century and then subsequently reject the authority and separate themselves from the Roman Catholic Church. So it's not just Luther and Lutherans, but it's also Reformed Protestants and those who are inspired primarily by John Calvin, and also the full range, and this I think is a very important part, maybe we can talk some more about it, the full range of other non-Lutheran, non-Reformed Protestants who also reject the authority of the Catholic Church, but, but at the same time reject either uh, Reformed Protestantism or... Well, maybe uh, uh, it's a misnomer then to uh, speak of it as a reform movement. It sounds more like a revolt. <laughs> well, it's, it's, certainly, it's certainly a rejection of the authority yeah. of Roman Catholicism. Yeah. That is the one thing that all Protestants of the 16th century share in common. Yeah. What they don't share in common are their respective views about what that entails as yeah. far as uh, how, how is it that one ought to be Christian? Christian? What is God's truth? What are the, the expectations you know, for Christian you know. faith and life given that rejection? But, but in addition to a, a revolt against uh, the received doctrine and structures of the church, it also uh, represented a break, a rupture with what had been understood as 
the unity of Christendom. I mean, that was completely shattered in the wake of this so-called reform. Yeah, it's. I mean, it. Yes, that's that's true. Um, the, the. I mean, the one the one thing I would also just. Um, it, I mean, it's important to recognize is that it's in crucial respects a rejection of many of the traditional understandings of certain doctrines and and many practices as well. Ironically, um, particularly when when ecumenically minded Christians today look back, yeah. they're often struck by how many things the, the Catholics and most Protestants of the 16th century continued to share in common. Yeah. So for example, extremely few Protestants rejected the, the, the doctrine of the Trinity in the, yeah. in the 16th century. Um, extremely few rejected the, the divinity of Christ, yeah. things that become subsequently more. That said, it's the rejection particularly of, of papal authority yeah. and the place of the papacy within the church that um, is, is the crucial, and the attempt, well, I wouldn't say the attempt, the insistence by Protestants of various uh, kinds to insist on the Bible as right. the, the, the sole, the final and sole foundation for Christian faith and life. Right. I think it's important to indicate that, you know, there is such a pluriformity to Absolutely. the Protestant Reformation, exactly. you know, on issues of baptism, the Lord's Supper, Absolutely. Episcopal governance, you know, some have bishops, others don't. You know, and within 50 years, you already have not only the Lutheran and the Calvinist and the English or the Anglican, but the Anabaptists, the radical reformers yep. who are rejecting infant baptism and that sort of thing. Not, not, and not just within, I would say within 10 years. Yeah. Those, all of those, with, with the exception of, well, the emergence of Anglicanism is a, we can talk a little bit more about that if you want to. I mean, I would set that in a, somewhat of a separate category because right. of the way that it begins under you Henry VIII. Yes. It's, it's not so much a principled doctrinal rejection yeah. as it is um, a, a rejection of socioeconomic. About, yeah, well, there's that, there, yeah, there's that as well, um, certainly. But, but the, the disagreements between Martin Luther and Huldrych Zwingli over the Eucharist right. appear already in the 1520s. The differences between Zwingli and the first Anabaptists start already by 1524-25. Right. Let's so, bring let's bring it back a little bit. Yeah, let's just okay, start. No, these are this is great, <laughs> and we're going to continue to look at this throughout the show. But let's start with the moment. Let's start with Luther, uh, the world in which he was living in, the sure. uh, culture uh, that bred the Reformation and some of these issues. Right. I was really impressed reading the book, uh, just getting a sense. You know, we've grown up in a religious world that is used to pluralism, used to different denominations of Christianity. I found one of the most fascinating things of your book, that picture of the world before a Reformation in, in Western Europe. And maybe you can share a little bit of some of the things that led to uh, Martin Luther uh, right. beginning the Reformation. Sure. I mean, um, it's, it's difficult to characterize that in, in very short order, sure. uh, of course. It's a, it's a complicated and, and a very long-standing um, religious civilization, socially, politically complex. Um, but the, the, I guess the, 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 the things that probably stand out the most, particularly from a, a, a modern Western, modern American, North American, or European perspective, are the, the combination of the local character of life, and by that I mean, you know, obviously there are no uh, modern forms of rapid transportation or communication. Most people's per, uh, specific reference and understanding of what it means to practice their faith, for example, is centered on local, a local parish church and the relationship to whatever religious orders might be within mm -hmm. proximity to the way that they live. That said, there's also an extraordinary um, kind of um, I wouldn't call it uniformity, but I would say commonality of institutions, beliefs, and practices 
whether you're talking about Iceland or Sicily or Poland or what's now Spain, the institutions of Catholicism, bishops, parishes, religious orders, the liturgy, saints' days, devotion to the saints, mm -hmm. pilgrimages, these are characteristic in their respective localized ways for, for essentially everyone except for the, the, the small minority of Jews in the places where they're still permitted. Could, could we stop right there? Yeah, sure. Uh, there's no way you can overstate the importance of what you've just said. I mean, that was the defining experience. That's what determined identity. Not that you were uh, English or French or German or Italian, but that you belonged to the mystical body of Christ. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, Res publica Christiana. Right, that certainly is, uh, that's, that's right. I mean, that's, that's, that's true. In the late Middle Ages, certainly since the 14th century and more in the 15th, increasingly there, there is really unmistakable more and more of an emphasis by non-ecclesiastical authorities, I won't call them secular authorities because that could be misleading, right. non-ecclesiastical authorities to themselves take up the cause of reforming the things in the church that so many people think need to be reformed. And that's the other thing I would just say about the, the, the picture at the time. Membership in the mystical body of Christ, the res publica, the teaching and practices of the church, right, as an ideal on the one hand, and the realities of so many people, right, members of the clergy and the laity, failing to live up to. Right, right. Without the understanding of that discrepancy, we cannot understand the success of the Protestant Reformation. You know, I'm thinking of uh, the section in your book where you describe a five-year period for Luther from 1516 to 1521. Yeah. In 1516, he's over busy. As an Augustinian monk, yeah. he just can't keep up with all of his chores. You know, and then in 1521, he is the best-selling European author of all time. Yeah. You know, what happened? Well, it wasn't simply one massive personality. Uh, no. I think, as you just indicated, you've got to go back at least a century or two and recognize not, you know, it, it's sort of like the gestation of nation states because you still have that unified sense of the mystical body. But when you have two or three men claiming to be pope, such as you do in the 15th century, and councils that are convened to kind of decide which one really is the pope, then the emergence of conciliarism, that councils are in a sense over the Pope. At least that is a legitimate position, you know, it's claimed to be legitimate by many. So you have, I would say, something akin to tectonic plate shifting, you know, setting up something of an ecclesial earthquake, you know, but then to kind of mix the metaphor, Luther becomes this sort of volcanic figure. Right. Uh, and the other one, another factor also, that's also always mentioned that um, helps us to understand why Luther can have that almost instantaneous uh, transformative influence is, of course, the invention of print in the middle right. of the 15th century. Right. Right. That, is, that is really important. It's, it's not, um, we, we, we shouldn't be mistaken about that. I mean, it's much, oftentimes there's a connection made between the emergence of the Protestant Reformation and print, the print press. Well, we have to remember the printing press is around for over 60 years before Luther becomes a public figure. The printing press, is, you could say, is the last great medieval Catholic technological innovation mm. because it's, it's being used to print books of hours and prayer sheets yeah. and yeah. all kinds of, of works prior to that. But without, the, without the, the printing press, for sure, there would not, Martin Luther would not have been possible. And particularly his decision in early 1518 to start to talk about controversial matters of theology in the vernacular. Right. That you just didn't do before. And Luther sees, he, he sees and seizes 
that opportunity, right, right. and and it becomes ext I mean, extraordinary. His his this this short pamphlet he writes about grace yeah. in March of fifteen eighteen has almost twenty editions by the end of the year. That's astounding. Based it shows there's an appetite, right. a yeah. lay right. appetite for these issues. Yeah. And based on that culture, then do you think um, if Martin Luther hadn't done what he had done, somebody else would have? I mean, you're you're painting a picture of a culture that was ripe for reformation with the technology available. Was it how much was it Luther and how much was it uh, the environment in which yeah, but that's always been the case. The church is is perennially in need of reform, and right. there were movements of reform Absolutely. that antedate oh, yeah. Luther that didn't eventuate in heresy. Exactly, exactly. Saint Bernard of Clairvaux, Absolutely. Catherine of Siena, and many other ferocious besides. letters Absolutely. written uh, uh, to Absolutely. the you know the exiled papacy in Avignon, and in effect right. telling the pope, "You get the hell back to Rome that's and right. be pope." I mean, that's pretty fiery. Absolutely, but no it doesn't about result it. Uh, in a rupture. The, the key, I mean, the, and the key difference between understanding those kinds of late medieval reform movements on the one hand and what happens with the Protestant Reformation is, the question is, when push comes to shove, do you reject the authority yeah. of the, the church, the tradition, the papacy, or not? Those, those medieval reformers did not. There were other medieval movements That's that right. did. Yeah. The Valdensians, yeah, the Hussites, right. Right, the Wycliffe movements, right. And, right. and Wycliffeites and Lollards in England and so forth. So, Albigensians. So it's not as if there were no medieval predecessors, we could say, that are structurally similar to what happens in the 16th century. Yeah. For, seen in that perspective, you could look at the Protestant Reformation as the last and by far the most successful of the medieval movements that reject the authority of yeah. the church. Yeah. It's the last medieval movement. It's not yeah. the first modern one. But it metastasizes it, into something pretty revolutionary. The political support of particular forms of, of yeah. Protestantism is what makes the difference. I think the political support has to be identified along with the printing press. Absolutely. There's yeah. no, no doubt about because it. Because you have princes now in position to really not only back Luther, no but doubt to about protect it. him. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and, unless, and that's the other thing, too, that's crucial about Luther's particular situation. He's in the Holy Roman Empire, which yeah. is a kind of conglomeration, a sort of aggregate of hun literally hundreds of different city-states and territories and so forth, yeah. all of whom owe a kind of obedience to the Holy Roman Emperor, but that retain a significant amount of local political right. autonomy. Right. Yeah. So it comes back to that point about the local character right. of, of life. Luther's protection from his prince, Frederick right. of Saxony, is absolutely right. crucial. Right. If Frederick of Saxony in 1519-1520 had, had, had acceded to the demands that were being made by Rome, you know, said, saying, hey, send this guy here. Right. We don't like what this Augustinian right. friar right. is saying. He's uppity. Uh, send him here so we can try him. And Frederick of Saxony says, uh, thank you very much, but he's right. my star professor, and you've not right. convinced me right. that what he's saying is heretical. That was and the, that protection is crucial. And I thought that was a fascinating moment in the book, not just to look at the theological significance of what Luther was writing about, yeah. Yeah. but the political backdrop, which really yes. makes it understandable. Why is yeah. this not just a heresy, something right. that squelched. And it, it really belies the myth that the church at that moment was monolithic. Yeah. Oh, things yeah, things yeah, are pretty amazing. loose, pretty amorphous. It's, it's this guy is protected. The late, fault lines. the late medieval church is extraordinarily complex. It's extraordinarily variegated. And right. we should never mistake, however we want to characterize its unity, yeah. with some kind of uniformity. Right. It is incredibly right. diverse in the religious orders, forms of devotion, goes back to what I was saying before. Yeah. Well, we have much more to talk about, so stay with us for the next segment of Franciscan University Presents.
the interesting thing is that the uh, Christians today, both Catholic and Protestants, are facing both radical Islam and radical secularism, uh, each of which wants to extinguish Christianity, not just Catholic or Protestant, but both. At the time of Martin Luther, 500 years ago, the concern at that point was also the rise of secularism or atheism and Islam. So we are actually facing the same situation now that they did then, except we're facing it as a disunited Christendom. When God created you, he made you like no other person. You are unique, singular, and unrepeatable. So shouldn't your college experience be the same? At Franciscan University of Steubenville, you'll find faith and reason, wisdom and grace, mercy and truth. You'll study under world-class scholars and seasoned practitioners who are committed to Christ and His Church. With over 40 majors and pre-professional programs, you'll find the formation you need to succeed. You'll discover lifelong friends and mentors who will welcome you, challenge you, and encourage you. Because we believe as Catholics, we are not called to hide from culture, but transform it. At Franciscan University, you'll find more than just a college. You'll find yourself and an educational experience as singular as you are. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We've been talking about Martin Luther and the Reformation with our guest, Dr. Brad Gregory, author of Rebel in the Ranks, Martin Luther, the Reformation, and the Conflicts that Continue to Shape Our World. You know, in our first segment, Brad, we were talking about how Martin Luther launched this Reformation, but uh, you mentioned in the book a number of times that there were intended but many unintended consequences. Essentially, it was something that he might have started but quickly got away from even what he envisioned might occur. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's one of the, the main themes of this book and a previous book uh, that I wrote, The Unintended Reformation, as well. Uh, for sure, when Luther first protests about misunderstandings in the way that the laity are understanding indulgences with his 95 theses, he's not envisioning, a, he's certainly not envisioning to start his own church. That would have been unintelligible uh, to him. There is only one Christian church, and that's the one that he wants to, in his view, call back to what he regards as its true mission, meaning, mm -hmm. and teachings, and so forth. Uh, but certainly he did not, and no one could have envisioned what was going to unfold over the next, even the next three or four years. The, it's the, the emphasis by mid-1519 that Luther places on Scripture alone as, when push comes to shove, the sole final authority for Christian faith and life. That is his most consequential move, because that's the one that inspires lots of others mm. who say, yeah, it is all about God's Word, it's all about Scripture, when necessary, over against the ecclesial tradition within which Scripture has been understood, applied, enacted liturgically, made the basis of devotion, and so forth for so many centuries. That principle becomes the, really, the, the kind of, I, I sometimes say it's both the cornerstone for Protestant Reformation, but it's simultaneously its stumbling block. Yeah. That, that's really the catalyzing issue, and I'm so glad that you emphasize it uh, so well in your book. I mean, it, it's not really about different accounts on how people get to heaven. It's not really about faith. It's finally a crisis of authority. Who interprets this? Who authorizes this or that reading of Scripture? I mean, sola scriptura begs the question, 
Whose book is it? To yeah. whom does it belong? It also begs the other question, that is, whose interpretation is yeah. binding? Because on the one hand, it's a theological principle that you can find antecedents for in previous centuries, that the Bible has a certain primacy. Okay, granted, not sola scriptura, but the Dominicans, as Tierney points out, prima scriptura. Uh, but the idea that the Bible is our sole authority immediately sets into motion things that have social and political consequences because Absolutely. of the emergence of conflicting authorities as to how to interpret the Bible. Absolutely right. And, that's, and that goes back, too, to that embeddedness of Christianity in all yeah. aspects of life. Right. Because of that, that's the late medieval world. But, of course, the world of 1515 and the world of 1525 are not radically different in terms of how material, people's material right. lives, social realities, political institutions, and so forth. So all of that embeddedness, how... Ought, ought social relationships, familial relationships, political authority, wider culture. How are all those things related now to a contestation about what Christian truth is? The Protestant Reformation is a trauma in Western history because it's a disagreement about what the cornerstone commitments of that civilization are. Right. Once, you, once you say scripture alone, it's, it's about God's word, then the question becomes, how do you interpret God's word correctly? Right. And when you have disagreements that are socially, politically divisive, how are you going to resolve those? And we That's see immediately disagreements occurring Absolutely. with a lot of, you know, maybe you could start talking about some of how the tapestry gets unwound. That well, maybe before you do that, uh, could you reflect on what was wrong with Luther? Why couldn't he have seen this? Was he not terribly self-aware? Was he so tormented with his own faith struggle? his need to feel the presence of God, that he couldn't, he couldn't look over the most immediate horizon and see the disaster that was looming? Well, he, he yeah, he, the way he, even, even as things start to, um, start to unravel, I mean, I would say more like explode in the 1520s. The 1520s are an incredibly um, tumultuous decade. Um, he, there's a way to interpret that from his perspective, yeah. which is that these are, yet further indications of the imminent apocalypse yeah. that reinforce his sense of himself as God's prophet. Because, of course, look around you. The world's falling apart. Yeah. Clearly, this is the 11th hour before right, Christ is going to come again. But, you know, the, the, the question of what was wrong with Luther, I mean, you know, this has been a, th th that question or, you know, how do we interpret Luther <laughs> and, and so right. forth has yeah. been an issue already since the 16th century. And I mean, I guess I would characterize the two, two basically different kinds of interpretations are either he is an extraordinarily <clears throat> um, spiritually sensitive, religiously intense, and anxiety-ridden, late medieval, devout late medieval Augustinian friar. He's, he's, he's gifted theologically, he's extraordinarily gifted rhetorically, um, and it is his, his inability to find a kind of consolation and a, a, um, a, the, the sense that he actually is forgiven by God within, within the practices of the late. It's not this, this guy's, uh, you know, not taking it seriously. He yeah. takes it in a sense so seriously that his own confessor says, lighten up. Yeah. That's one view. Right. The other view is, out of that, you know, if, you, if, you, if you, you're sympathetic to Luther, you think this, this man's a religious genius. He mm -hmm. really got to the core of what the gospel is, and it's about God's unmerited forgiveness that is the core of everything else, and our actions in our Christian lives flow from that. They don't contribute 
to our salvation. Yeah. They are, in a sense, right, the now anxiety-free expression of having already been saved by God. Yeah. And if you think that is this kind of transformative existential experience, yeah. you're going to be favorably disposed to Luther or some other version of the Protestant uh, Christian traditions. You know, Luther introduces into theology this approach to the Old Testament and the New, what Lutherans still call the law-gospel dialectic, yes. you know, yeah. that the gospel in a certain sense supersedes the law. And Calvin, of course, and his followers sort of adjust that to emphasize much more continuity between the old and the new. And at one level, we can discuss all of this at an exegetical, theological context, but what, what you're pointing to is, again, the conflict of competing authorities, multitude of, you know, uh, of, of individuals and movements that interpret this. So when you fast forward one century to the 1620s, oh, yeah. you, know, you see something that was unleashed a century before. You know, a disaster for sure, but I mean, far worse than anybody could have imagined. Yeah, yeah that's, that's certainly the case. And the that, wars of religion, absolutely, so-called. Absolutely. And I mean, as I, as I refer to them in my book, we really should refer to them as the wars of more than religion. Right. Because, because Christianity was so much more than religion in the ways right. that we tend to think about it. Yeah. Our, our individual interior beliefs, religion most fundamentally for most people when you think about what, well, it's what I believe first and foremost, and that's something interior. I kind of introspect, um, yep, checklist, I believe those things. Um, in addition, your collective forms of worship, how you worship with people as a community, and then whatever individual devotional practices you, right. you choose. Pray the rosary, do, go to a Bible study, whatever the case may be. But religion is not in the modern sense, about shaping the wider society. It's not about how power is exercised. It's not about how ec economic interactions right, should be guided and so forth. Because religion is all of those things in the late Middle Ages and the Reformation era, changes in and disagreements about religion are going to affect everything else. Yeah. And because all the parties involved agree, yes, eternal salvation is at stake here, yeah. The stakes could not be higher. This is a crucial adjustment in the typical storyline that we've all been fed all of our lives, going back centuries, that the so-called Thirty Years' War was really a war of religion. It wasn't. It was more than religion, but as Kavanaugh points out, and the, yeah. the fire is strong enough to, you know, it really is the emergence of secular nation states who are weaponizing religion to advance, I would say, secular ends. Yeah, this, I mean, I'm, I, I disagree a little bit with uh, Kavanaugh about that, um, but, but the, in, in the sense that I, I don't think it's easy to separate the exercise of power and right. the ways in which religion is intended to shape the exercise of that yeah, power. Yeah. In the Middle Ages, in the Reformation era, and as we go even in, into the 17th century. So the, 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 one of the most difficult things about interpreting and understanding this period is to see that our categories of religion and politics as we instinctively think about them right. are, are intertwined in such a way that it, it's, it's very difficult in many cases to know where one starts and the other stops. Right. It is right. absolutely, every conscientious ruler in the 16th and the early 17th century, whether Protestant or Catholic, absolutely takes it as a, a, a given. They're gonna be held accountable by God by right. how they exercise right. their power and it is incumbent upon them to try to make their respective regimes, the, the people and their yeah. subjects, members of 
true Christianity as they understand. But your treatment of that, I think, backs into Kavanaugh's notion, because the very notion of religion itself is emerging now with an entirely new and meaning that's, and that's that is point. generic. We're talking about the same thing. That's we're, right. We're just trying to find the words and the, the ways to describe it. Yeah. And I think for, for example, really uh, I think of the, the English uh, Civil War, and you've got Cromwell against yes. King Charles. I mean, they're both utterly preoccupied with God. What is God thinking about what I propose to do? I'm going to stand before him. That accounting, I think, lends a, a huge eschatological weight to every discrete human decision. And for us to imagine that world requires a, a leap that I think we're not accustomed to making because we live in a postmodern world. I mean, we live in cyberspace, more, more or less. And to go back to that 16th century world, I mean, to use Shakespeare's image, it's a stage on which religiosity occupies practically every inch. Yeah. You can't move without bumping into God. Yeah, there are, that, yes, the, the pervasiveness of religious concerns and the extent to which the Reformation actually increases that, one yeah. could argue, in the 16th century because things are not taken for granted in the ways that, we, that they were before. If, if to, take, to stick with England, if you decide to continue to maintain the practice of the, the ancestral traditional Christianity of England, medieval Catholicism under Queen Elizabeth, you know, you, you really are taking your life into your hands, for Jesus. sure. After 1581, you'd better not, for example, right. talk to any priest, or if you do, yeah. you might be prepared to have to suffer the consequences And without well. understanding this culture, you know, when you look at modern movements today, such as New Atheism, you know, they are very quick to characterize religion as the source of all violence, the source of all wars. And so they'll talk about the Thirty Years' War, they'll talk about all of these wars that came out of, in their argument, religion. But really what I thought this book does a great job with is showing the, the political climate, the cultural climate, and even this understanding of, you know, Americans were so saturated with there's a separation of church and state, and were taught instinctively as a young person it would be foolish to have religion be any part of public realm or public society. And I thought one of the most interesting, fascinating things about this book is how you start showing the connection that it really, as you're arguing, was the Reformation that began that separation. Without one church authority, many authorities, now this brings up a rise of secularism within society, and those were some of the unintended consequences of what started perhaps as a more theological movement than a societal shift. Well, I mean, you're quite right that Luther and Calvin would have been horrified at what has happened, but, but the logic of what they did played out uh, into this final uh, uh, transmutation, but, but they would have been just they, they would have been stupefied uh, to see what they had set in motion. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. I mean, um, you know, uh, neither one would have been um, pleased by the kind of individualism, self-determination, um, construction of uh, one's own identity, the individualism, and the way in which freedom in the modern world is understood. Uh, that is not at all. They, these, are, these are men who, in their respective ways, want to make their entire society right. and culture more Christian, more authentically right. Christian than they think it has been. They're not interested in privatizing no. religion. No, those two certainly not. There are a handful of, of radical Protestants in yeah. 
in the 16th century who uh, will adumbrate or gesture or kind of move. You can see certain of the things that they're saying that religion ought not to be right. attached to political power and, at and all. And they're prepared to impose an orthodoxy even more oppressive than the one that they saw in Rome. And we're going to take a look at some of the ramifications of that when we come back. Stay with us. The interesting thing about the invention of the printing press in the 1400s is that it's often seen, especially by Protestants, as a, as a great herald of truth because they associate it with the publishing of so many uh, vernacular Bibles that could spread all around. The actual truth of it is that uh, it also spread around a lot of errors. That is, Martin Luther's own enemies used the printing press to disperse all kinds of information. Uh, that he didn't uh, like. Uh, it also allowed for rival uh, printed copies of the Bible with anti-Lutheran aspects to them. Uh, and on top of all that, uh, if that weren't ambiguous enough, uh, this was the time of the rise of modern pornography. So the printing press wasn't an unmixed gift. Uh, it, it spread some kinds of things. Some of them were good, some of them were bad. Some of them helped Luther, some of them helped undermine him. You don't have to trade top-flight academic programs for a passionately Catholic identity. You can have both. At Franciscan University of Steubenville, you'll not only deepen your faith, you'll be prepared for real-world success by dedicated professors for whom excellence isn't just a goal, but the standard. Ready to get started? Check out franciscan.edu. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. This show is recorded in the Communication Arts Studio here on the campus of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Our students are operating the cameras and equipment, and my colleagues in the Theology Department, Dr. Regis Martin and Dr. Scott Hahn, are contributing to our discussion with Dr. Brad Gregory on Martin Luther and the Reformation Today. He's the author of Rebel in the Ranks. And Brad, we were talking in the last segment of the consequences, somewhat unintended, uh, the wars of religion, the Thirty Years' War, and how uh, effects have even uh, rolled forward into our 20th century. I, I found it to be one of the most exciting parts of the book. You were making connections I never saw before, uh, especially how our attitude towards religious and secularization and church and state Really, you're pointing stemming from this moment of the Protestant Reformation. Yeah, that's, that's right. And I think that, that probably is the, the part of my research and my scholarship that has garnered the most attention. Um, typically, people who are interested in the Reformation have an interest in theology and in religion, and they, they kind of stop in the 17th century or thereabouts because it's assumed that, well, Everything that happened since then is very different, and it really doesn't relate to the, what happened in the 16th and 17th century. So if you're interested in, in those later things, you can pretty much dispense with an understanding of the, the, more, the wars of more than religion and the theological and doctrinal impasses between Protestants and Catholics and among Protestants in the Reformation era. And the thrust of, of this book and my previous book has been essentially to say, not so. We cannot understand the modern world, and including the world that we're living in today in the early 21st century, without understanding how it is an attempt to deal with the unintended outcomes and consequences of the Reformation era, mm -hmm. an attempt to manage, control, redefine, and reposition religion for those who may choose it 
also a huge innovation right. in the modern world and in modern Western states that are focused much more on allowing individuals to determine for themselves what they want to believe, how they want to live, how much they want to buy. That's the other crucial yeah. innovation is the ways in which modern capitalism and consumerism have, in a sense, uh, largely displaced Christianity yeah. as the institutional partner with political authorities uh, when we look at the differences between our world and the, the Reformation era. When I was reading this, I was reminded of my own personal pilgrimage in high school. My conversion experience was really a result of reading Luther. And my senior paper, uh, a 20-page paper from Ms. Dengler on <laughs> sola fide, Luther's rediscovery of the gospel, and researching 15, 20 sources and all of that, and really feeling like I was participating in his rebirth of Christian faith as an individual. you know. But then in college, I went on to study economics. And in a, in a school where the free market, individualism, libertarianism, and I thought, what a perfect match. You know. <laughs> Economics that are libertarian and individualist are sort of like the socioeconomic counterpart to what I had experienced in terms of my own spiritual awakening. But when you go deeper into scripture, or history for that matter, you begin to realize that there is something superficial about that reading of scripture. And in fact, when I read in the Fathers, I, I began to realize that even though he was an Augustinian, there was a profound rupture with most of what you could find in patristic and especially high Middle Ages. And, and so this is what sent me on a search for a church that he had simply jettisoned. You know, I thought, well, that is the liberation. That is the moment of freedom. But in fact, you know, when you begin to go deeper into Scripture, you recognize, no, no, that's, that's an individualistic, experiential, and I think a voluntaristic reading of life, not just the Old Testament and the New, not just economic realities. And I, and I think, looking back on my own pilgrimage, my experience is sort of replicating the centuries of uh, development that you trace, that, that there really is a kind of a secularization of public life because religion is intensified but individualized. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's, that's right. I mean, one of the ironies about Luther with respect to economic issues is that he is more, a more severe critic of usury, of the tendency to accumulate wealth, than even his Catholic scholastic contemporary. It's Calvin who really introduced Calvin, and, but even Calvin, that's true as far as it goes, although the exaggerations about Calvin as sort of, you know, Luther was still stuck in the past, very traditionally minded, right. medieval, Calvin is forward-looking, entrepreneurial, wants to unleash the power of capitalism. Right, that, that's, that, that's, a, that's a major that's exaggeration. Yeah, I, yeah. That, but, but, um, I mean, I, I, the, the one I guess I would say, just my, my own uh, impression is that um, it's, I, I don't think it's just, it, it's not just a superficial understanding of Scripture. I mean, I think anybody who reads the New Testament cannot possibly come away with it without thinking that Jesus is absolutely clear about the dangers of the pursuit of wealth, that right. greed is yeah. a serious sin. You cannot serve both God and mammon. I mean, you know, there are parables about the widow's might and her little copper coin and what she gives and how that's right more than what the person gave out of his yeah. excess. There are you know extraordinary um, images about rich people squeezing through the eye of a needle. And so, Brad, for these those are profound, that, profoundly right, antithetical right. to what is taken for granted right, in American right, society. Exactly. And I'm just thinking of listeners right now who haven't had the benefit of reading the book or 
knowing as much as uh, some of you do. So just make a clear connection then between the capitalism of today and how the Reformation impacted that. Sure. Well, I mean, it's, 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 it's much less, um, and, and here is where I, uh, to some extent, part company with Max Weber, the German sociologist, and the Weber thesis about a particular influence of Calvinism on the emergence of modern capitalism. Okay. It's, it's much more capitalism and the individual pursuit of more and better possessions starts in the 17th century, understandably, by the end of the Thirty Years' War, around 1650, to look to both Protestants and Catholics like something worth pursuing, more uh, pleasing, more uh, appealing than risking another round of fratricidal Right. more than religious yeah. conflict. Yeah. Right. And so the Dutch are really the innovators in this regard. The yeah. English learn from the Dutch, and those who become the Americans learn from the English in the, in yeah. the 18th century. So it's not, I mean, it, I don't think it's a matter of um, capitalism emerging out of Protestantism and its individualism. It is both Catholics and Protestants looking for something that to them looks more appealing and understandably. And so more, unity, more unity through economy. Yeah. It's, yes, it's that's, right. That's, right. Right. that's right. That's right. That's right. That the pursuit of more and better stuff right. becomes a kind of cultural glue because almost everybody wants more and better things. Right. And we are still doing today, uh, transformed right. by the industrial What it all segues into, I think, is a kind of practical atheism. I, I think of John Courtney Murray's uh, analysis uh, in The Problem of God. He, he seizes upon uh, this one form of modern atheism, which he calls the bourgeois atheism of the marketplace. Yeah. And, and yeah. it works like this. I can make a living uh, in, 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 the, in the world without any reference to God at all. In fact, he's something of an impediment. He's a barrier. Absolutely. He gets in the way of this acquisition of, of wealth. So I become virtually an atheist. And I'm wondering to what extent is Luther culpable uh, for that? I mean, he didn't intend it directly, but the fallout is, is unmistakable. He set in motion these centrifugal forces which he never intended, but the end game of that is an atomized society where each person becomes not just his own priest or pope or professor of ethics, but really his own king, his own sovereign master of the universe. And I mean, you, you see this in, in the Tom Wolfe novel, Vanity, you know, the bonfire mm -hmm, mm -hmm, of the, the vanities. vanities. I mean, you, you ruthlessly pursue your own pleasure, your own appetite. And Luther, in a way, is doing this in the religious order. He's so self-obsessed. You want to tell him, you know, relax, uh, lighten up. Look at the other reformers, like Teresa of Avila. I mean, she didn't go mad. She became a mystic. That was an option, but he didn't exercise it. Well, I mean, he, <coughs> the point about, yes, from Teresa of Avila lives after Luther, so he could have looked to her, but he could right. have looked to other Catherine Henry Suzo, of, of Genoa. That's right. And, but, I mean, I, I suppose, I mean, I'm, I am, as a historian, aware of, you know, how many contingencies it, uh, you know, inter are interposed between Luther's initial objection yeah. to misunderstandings of indulgences and then where things go by 1521, but also the ways in which those in the Curia and other Catholic theologians at the time respond to yeah. Luther. There are, there are lots of things that could have gone differently in that interaction, it seems to me, that so things could have transpired much more differently. I'm, so I'm, I'm loath to connect 
you know, what Luther did with you know, where we are right, now in, right. in any sense of, of, of responsibility or what he, uh, you know, he did unleash it. But one could also push back you know, 50 years, 30 years or before Luther yeah. and say, had there not been yeah. the, the, the really, I think, disastrous gulf, uh, the extent of the right. difference between prescriptions and lived realities within late medieval Catholicism, yeah. Luther, for all of his appeals, might have been regarded as what's what's wrong with that guy? I mean, he, right. what, what's what's up with him? He's got clearly some strange idiosyncratic spiritual crisis going on, but right. things are things are looking good as far as the practice of the faith right. goes. So let's go, you know, deal, let him do his thing. He might not have had the impact unless. So right. one could say, right? And and you know, but I, but I mean, you can push it more. forward though too. Absolutely, you can yeah. push it forward like Maritain does by saying, you know, apart from Descartes or apart from Rousseau. I yeah, mean, that's right. Luther certainly sets into motion things that he didn't intend. No, exactly. Or foresee yeah, or desire. That, that's your point, and that's that's, yeah. that's yeah, I mean, my point. I think maybe I, Trent should have taken place two generations before, but there were keen minds, sensitive souls. I think of Reginald Pohl, who who delivered the inaugural address. Yeah, uh, and he he commented on on the corruption, the worldliness, it was a mess. Yeah. The moral critique that Luther mounted was largely shared by these men, these Absolutely. fathers Absolutely. of the council. But, but the, and the key is, right, for Luther, it's not just a moral No, it mess. becomes that's the That's the key. Right. What, what was regarded as a need to close this gap yep. in the later, in, in the, not only in the late Middle Ages, but also by the 16th century, the Tridentine reformers and, and others like Teresa of Avila, a, a way to, they want to close the gap. The Protestant reformers say that gap is due to a doctrinal error, doctrinal waywardness and mistakes about how God relates to human beings, how we are saved, what the truth of the sacraments is, etc. Yeah. That's the reason why you, the Catholic Church, can't get its act together. And right. why, why the gap, why it's always a church in need of reform. Now what they find out is that it's very difficult as well to create new structures and right. have the fit between prescriptions and realities. Uh, Bob, you were pointing out the idea that I think instinctively Europeans are looking for something that will unite us. If it's not the church, then perhaps it'll be theology in the 1500s. If it's not theology, then perhaps philosophy That's in the right. 1600s. If it's not the philosophers, then it'll be political revolutions in the 1700s and, and trying to figure out our own path as nation states. You know, science, I think, might be emerging in the 1800s for the same purpose. That is, we've got to find something to unite us. Otherwise, it just feels like we're squeezing toothpaste back into the tube. There's no way to achieve unity. And even if it is a lowest common denominator approach, it's understandable, because you want to stop killing your neighbors in the name of religion. Exactly. exactly. And, and I mean, it's understandable in the, in the 17th century why people would have said, it, let's go shopping instead of continuing to fight about religion. Right, right. But that's essentially what we're still doing. Right. Um, it, the, the, the problems with that have only started to emerge in, 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 in a glaringly obvious way with recognition of the problems of climate change and global warming. I mean, this is a huge problem that is directly related. What's it related to? All the industrial manufacturing that produces all of that stuff that caters to politically protected individual consumers that want more and more. And there is no way that the planet Earth can support an India or a China consuming at the same rate as Americans. And there's no moral authority no. to speak no. with. On the contrary, right? There's, there is a cacophony of competing voices. Competing well, it's, it's finally a crisis right. of meaning. I mean, Jusani yeah. says you can't live five minutes without locating some logos. You need a defining That's right. meaning. As Newman said, a truth. Too. 
If, yeah. a, if a person cannot discover yeah. the truth, they, they will invent one for themselves. Right, yeah, a counterfeit. Um, you, you can't really live, you can't even intend meaningful human actions yeah. in the short term, and as, as Jasani is, is saying there, um, without having some implicit, at least, guiding principle. Yeah. And the overwhelming default guiding principle in contemporary Western life, and I think accentuated in, probably in its, in its most conspicuous form in the United States, is that more and better possessions are given. Right. I am what I shop. Yeah. yeah. Uh, to be is to buy. Yes. That's right. Well, stay yeah. with us as our panel and guests will offer final thoughts on Martin Luther and the impacts of the Reformation today. One of the things that comes out of the Reformation is the disunity among Christians. That's obvious. And we're told that that was the cause of so many wars, primarily the Thirty Years' War, uh, the great bloody war that took place in Germany uh, in the first half of the 1600s. Now, the truth is that's not the only thing that's happening. You have, at the same time, the rise of nationalism. And what that means is that you have secular rulers asserting themselves and using religion to settle their own political conflicts. So what we have really is not just a religious wars, but nationalist wars. And the religious wars would never have been as bloody as they were if it weren't mixed with the tinder and the fire of nationalism. Explore the treasures of your Catholic heritage on a Franciscan University pilgrimage. Led by inspiring spiritual directors, you'll walk in the footsteps of saints and martyrs in the Holy Land, Poland, France, and Italy and you'll deepen your love for Jesus Christ through daily Mass, confession, prayer, and the joy of Christian fellowship. Let Franciscan University lead you on a pilgrimage of faith. Find out more at franciscan.edu slash pilgrimages. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. As we're at our final segment, Regis, uh, could you start us off with final thoughts on our discussion today? Yeah, uh, a very helpful question is to ask, what is the position of Catholic Christianity uh, uh, in, in the face of this Lutheran revolt? I mean, he rails against the church, ultimately in vain, because the church doesn't disappear. The church isn't vaporized by his polemic. The church survives triumphant uh, and produces a reform movement, which is, is the wonder of the world. But the, the church's position is that revelation is something communicated through both tradition and scripture. And the whole revolt uh, championed by Luther uh, stands or falls on that particular uh, connection. And he tried to uh, disconnect it. He tried to deconstruct uh, the unity of the church by driving a wedge between scripture and tradition. And the church insisted that tradition is equally indispensable. And, and I think of Solzhenitsyn, uh, his wonderful uh, Nobel uh, uh, speech back in uh, the early 70s when he got the uh, prize for literature. He said, my job, my task is to try and recover the memory of the Russian people, which has been amputated after 70 years of Soviet uh, tyranny. I think Luther tried to amputate the memory of Catholic Christendom, to just efface it altogether so that people would now sail in darkness and they would become their own pope, their own priest, 
their own professor of ethics. And the ultimate consequence of that is the modern age and the disintegration that he didn't author. He wasn't intending it, but it was certainly uh, the long-term result, and this we must deplore. Yeah. Thank you, Regis. Scott? I wanted to uh, point out that this book, Rebel in the Ranks, is a, a great popularization of your other book, mm. The Undetended Reformation, How a Religious Revolution Secularized Society. And I think the, the emphasis I'd like to make is uh, unintended that this is not something that Luther deliberately no. set in motion. You know, but at the same time, when I read this Unintended Reformation, I, I just opened up horizons of understanding that I found life-changing. Uh, because you know, ideas have consequences. And so when you alter the way people think about God, the church, the sacraments, and so on, you know, of course you're not going to be able to anticipate all of the, the implications. Uh, but at the same time, it all, I put it in reverse, and I realized that, okay, the Reformation contributed to the secularization of society in massive ways without intending it. But it, I flipped it around, and I realized that the Catholic faith has a capacity to form civilizations like no other religion, to create a sense of family. You know, as uh, Roger Lundeen of Wheaton put it in one of his essays, that what Luther inadvertently did was to do away with Mother Church and the spiritual fatherhood of the Pope to create, again, unintentionally, spiritual orphans. You know, when you look at how the faith created Christendom, you know, it wasn't the case that Christians were seeking to kind of create a Christian culture. As Pope Benedict pointed out, the monks did that. It was an unintended side effect. You know, and I think that the authentic reform of the 1500s that is marked by Therese of Avila, Ignatius Loyola, and others is a call to us that what can we do if we can't, you know, this, is seemings, this seems to be irreversible. But I think that what we can strive to do is really be saints, you know, and not just in a pietistic sort of private life, but to really bring about this sort of uh, new evangelization by setting into motion the forces of grace that can change life and, 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 and really trust God is going to do something with it. But I thank you for both books because I suspect that most people in the audience might not be able to read The Unintended Reformation, but those who can definitely should. Well, I appreciate the, appreciate the plug, uh, Scott, on the books. I mean, my, of course, my, my principal um, vocation and my principal emphasis as um, both uh, uh, a, a person of faith, a Catholic, and also as a scholar, is as a historian. Right. And so um, I suppose my, my, the few concluding thoughts I might have uh, are just a kind of exhortation to Catholic men and women, as well as others, to be aware of the significance and the importance of history for our self-understanding in the present day. The present is the product of the past. We cannot understand how we got to where we are unless we have a, an adequate grasp of the, the past. And the Reformation era, whether one likes the effects or not, is absolutely indispensable for an understanding of why we have the kinds of political protections of the individual, such an, an emphasis on individual autonomy, such an emphasis on freedom understood as the maximization of individual choice, why we have the kinds of uh, institutional separations between churches and states in the modern era that we have, and also 
the unintended consequences of the creation of all of those structures and emphases out of the Reformation era, how that has now um, resulted in many of the kinds of difficulties and problems that we, that we face today. But it seems to me that because Christianity is, it's a faith of the incarnation. God became incarnate in Jesus of Nazareth. And that being the case, it, seems to be, it would seem to me bizarre that a faith that recognizes the, the, the entry of God into human history, a God who reaches down and gets his hands dirty, who suffers and dies for human beings, who is part of the temporal order in first century Palestine, that, that a faith like that would ignore history, right. given that, a God entered, that God entered into history, would be a bizarre oversight right. indeed. Yeah. So uh, history matters, not just for our self-understanding in the present, regardless of our views, but also out of and because of our convictions as Catholic Christians. Right. And that was one of the great blessings I got from this book, just that historical perspective. You know, I don't think I even realized uh, how the Reformation had affected my spirituality, my thinking about just society, until you painted a beautiful picture of what life was like before the Reformation and really following through the consequences. It was really a wonderful book, and we're grateful for you being here and the conversation that we got to have today. So if you enjoyed today's program, we really encourage you to check out this wonderful book, Rebel in the Ranks, Martin Luther, the Reformation, and the Conflicts that Continue to Shape Our World. And if you'd like to learn more, uh, we have a handout, a free handout for you, What the Reformation Did and Why It Matters, written by our guest, Dr. Gregory. This is yours for free by simply going online to faithandreason.com or by calling the number you will see on the screen in just a moment. This handout is packed with information on how the Reformation affects our lives today. Um, my final thought on the topic, you know, I remember Heller Balak talked about how heresies exist because of the amount of truth that they contain. And something I thought you were very sensitive with in this book isn't just, boy, Luther was totally wrong. You know, it was, he was grabbing on many true things uh, that our faith teaches, and even today the church seeks reconciliation and unity with other denominations of Christianity, but you highlighted some of the key elements. Where's the foundation? Where's the authority? Where's the truth? And I think all of us, particularly living in the United States of America, uh, needs to be sensitive to that division, more importantly, for the sake of unity in the church, which is something that we can all pray for. Thanks for being a part of today's show. God bless. To download the free handout on today's topic, go to faithandreason.com. Email your request for the handout to presents at franciscan.edu. At faithandreason.com, you can also purchase past episodes of Franciscan University Presents, or request today's free handout and purchase past programs by calling 888-333-0381. That's 888-333-0381. Or call 740 Two eight three six three five seven.